Well, I'm excited about our new series, uh, Elevate. We're back into the book of Luke, chapter 9. So if you have your Bibles this morning, I want you to open them up to Luke 9. And we'll be looking at most of that chapter, but beginning at about verse 23, and then coming back and picking it up uh, at the first of the chapter. Elevate is about Jesus elevating us. Jesus elevating his disciples to prepare them for all he was going to do. And of course, what he's doing with his disciples, he's doing with us. You know, elevate's pretty important. And um, elevating means you take your game to the next level. And taking your game to the next level means a lot of hard work, a lot of changing of the way you do things, and, and really, quite frankly, redefining reality, redefining your call, redefining reality. To elevate means to move up, to be able to do what you couldn't do before. I remember when I was uh, playing college basketball as a freshman at Oklahoma Baptist University a long time ago. You graduate from high school and uh, you do pretty well in high school basketball. Most of the incoming freshmen that year were all state basketball players in Oklahoma or some other state. And uh, I remember going into college basketball thinking that I was just gonna take the team by storm, that I was gonna be a, a starter, I was gonna beat out the, the sophomores and the juniors and the seniors, and I was just gonna have my A game from day one. So I remember that first practice. It never occurred to me that these guys had been around for three years, they were all staters in their high school, that now I was not just a, a good player, but I was uh, among the best around. And so on that very first practice, I remember a pass being thrown from the point guard to the, uh, to the wing guy, and I was playing defense, and I intercepted the pass, saw it coming and intercepted it, and I raced down to the other end with the ball, and I was just gonna kind of make a statement. I was gonna lift it up over the rim and lay it on the glass, and I um, didn't think anybody was coming after me. What I didn't know was that a senior by the name of Walter Hurd had seen me steal that ball, and he came after me. And so as I was slowing down just to kind of make a statement to the coach, he jumped up from behind me and pinned the ball to the glass and then slapped it away. And as soon as we came down to the ground, he turned around and he stuck his hand out and said, welcome to college basketball, freshman. <laughs> he said, you better elevate your game. And for the next three weeks, that's exactly what those upperclassmen did. They were elevating the game of the freshman, he realized we, we didn't have any reason to be on that basketball court if we could not elevate our game. You know, the disciples Jesus called had no business truly following him unless they were going to let him elevate their life and elevate their calling and elevate what he called them to do in a supernatural way. That's what Luke 9 is all about. Would you stand with me as we read these first few verses of this text today that we're going to begin with. Luke chapter nine, beginning in verse 23, what I consider the most important section of all of Luke. This is maybe the most important passage for every believer in Jesus Christ. And he's talking to his disciples, and here's what he says in verse 23. And he was saying to them all, if anyone wishes to come after me. Now this would be a, an all-inclusive statement to all and anyone, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Now, by the way, as we read this, we need to understand that come after me is a phrase that doesn't just mean follow in a day-by-day, put your footsteps in his footsteps or footprints, but it's about being his successor. If any of you wishes to be my successor, if any of you wishes to, to pick up the calling that I'm going to hand to you, you must deny yourself, take up his cross daily and follow me. 
For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. For what is it? What is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself or his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I say to you truthfully, there are some of those standing here today who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Father, today we pray that you'll help us as we understand what it means to elevate our faith as we learn to follow you. Speak to every part of our lives today as you did those first disciples 2,000 years ago who became the forerunners, who laid down the foundation of what we do today, who we are today. Thank you, Father, for giving us the revelation of your word, the illumination of life as it should be in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. amen. Please be seated if you would. When you see Jesus pouring into the life of disciples Please understand he's pouring into their lives to elevate them to follow him. Uh, please also understand that every time Jesus teaches a disciple or gives him a lesson in faith, he's also giving you a lesson in faith. Understand today that God does not save us to leave us where we are. He saves us to make us progress in faith, progress in growth, becoming more and more like Jesus Christ. I thank God that I'm not who I used to be, and I thank God that I'm not yet who I will be, but I'm on a journey to get to where Christ wants me in terms of maturity, in terms of fullness. All of us are in that journey. All of us are in that process of elevating. Now, don't by any stretch of the imagination think that when I talk about elevate, it's about you elevating yourself. It's not about you elevating your name or you elevating your agenda. It's all about him elevating us to the level of what we ought to do in terms of walking with him, in terms of living for him. After all, he did not just save us to keep us out of heaven, even though he loved us enough to want us there. He saves us so we can serve him. He saves us so we can represent him. He saves us so that we can continue to further his kingdom here on planet earth. That's why we're told to pray every day. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Elevating your game is what Christian spiritual growth is all about. So what does it mean when Jesus elevates the faith of the disciples and by virtue of that, what does it mean for him to elevate our faith or your faith? Three things this text in Luke chapter nine tells us from verse one on that first of all, we've got to elevate your call. You've got to elevate your call. These, these disciples were normal guys. Peter, James, John, Matthew, Andrew, Judas. These were just normal guys, fishermen, tax collectors, normal, average men. And God called them out of their normalness in order to call them to follow Jesus Christ. Let's go back to the first part of the chapter and pick up what was happening here before he issues this amazing call in verse 23. It says, he called the 12 together and he gave them power and authority over the demons and to heal diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to perform healing. Notice the verbs here, what he's commanded them to do. He sent them out in verse two. And then he said to them, take nothing for your journey, neither a staff nor a bag, nor bread nor money, and do not even have two tunics apiece, whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave the city. And as for those who do not receive you as you go out from that city, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. Departing, they began going throughout the villages, preaching the gospel, and healing everywhere. Maybe the most important word 
in verse 9, uh, chapter 9, verses 1 through 6, is the word gospel. Look down in verse 10. When the apostles returned, they gave an account to him of all they had done. And taking them with him, he withdrew by himself to a city called Bethsaida. Jesus is elevating the call that he's placing on the disciples' life. Now that important word gospel is a word that we need to talk about for just a moment. In the context of Luke chapter 9, the word gospel refers to good news of the coming Messiah and good news of the work that he's about to do. And we know about that now looking in past tense. But the word gospel today is a more full, more mature word than it was in that day and time. This was about, in Luke 9, about the coming of this Messiah, the revealing of the one who would sacrifice for our sins. But now as we look back, we know exactly who Jesus was, exactly what Jesus did. We know exactly what God had in mind. And when we say the word gospel, we have a more full understanding of what it is. Jesus is elevating these disciples to understand their call to the gospel. And we have that call made more sure and made more full. We use the gospel acronym all the time to help people understand what the gospel really is. You know, if you ask 100 people what the gospel is, you may have 100 different answers. And sometimes people will say something like 1 Corinthians 15, Jesus died, was buried, rose again the third day. That's the gospel. But, but the gospel is a much more full story than simply that. In fact, we use the gospel acronym, and we've done that many times, and I want to do it again today. If you have your hand for you, one hand, would you just hold that hand out just a bit and put your, put your thumb up for just a moment because that's the G of the gospel. And the G of the gospel talks about God's character. Say that with me, would you? God's character. God's character is that God is a loving, merciful God who doesn't want to punish us for our sin, but is a just judge who will by no means let the guilty go unpunished. And the reason that's a problem is because of the O of the gospel. And the O stands for the offensive sin. Say that. The offense of sin. The offense of sin means all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. And what it means is that we cannot have access to God. That if we are left to ourselves, we're forever separated from God. And we can't have his forgiveness and we can't have his love. We can't have his favor because we have offended him through sin. And we can't solve this problem, but God does solve this problem in the person of Jesus Christ. So the S of the gospel, the third finger we hold up, stands for the sufficiency of Christ. Say that, the sufficiency of Christ. The sufficiency of Christ is that Jesus lived a perfect life and died on the cross, was buried, rose again the third day in payment for our sin, and it satisfied, it was sufficient to satisfy the character of God who loved us and didn't want to punish us for our sin, but was a just judge and is a just judge and will punish the guilty one, the sufficiency of Christ. The P of the gospel is where it all is applied to your life. And the P of the gospel is personal response. <laughs> Say that with me if you would. Personal response. The gospel is a fact. Jesus did all that, but it is not applied to your life until you personally respond by turning away from your sin and putting your faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone. The E of the gospel is eternal urgency. Would you say that with me? Eternal urgency. It means that it's a life and death kind of decision. It means when you put your faith in Christ, you are forever his. And if you do not put your faith and trust in Christ and die without doing that, it is eternally secured that you will be separated from him forever and ever and ever. 
It's eternally urgent that you make that decision. And the L of the gospel is life transformation. Say that with me. Life transformation. Anyone that puts their faith in Christ becomes a brand new person and God begins to work on the inside of your life out and it changes everything about your life. Now the gospel of Jesus Christ is what our call is. It was the call he placed on those original disciples. It's the call he places on our lives. Look down in verse 6. They began going throughout the villages preaching the gospel. Now in your Bible, underline that word preaching for a moment. Here's what you think it means. You think it means getting behind the podium and opening the book and beginning to talk about the book, but that's not what this word means. In fact, in the original language, it's transliterated to a word we all understand, and it's the word evangelism. It means that they were going out evangelizing people with the gospel or telling the good news. Jesus is putting the future of the world in the hands of his disciples, counting on them to share the gospel. Jesus was only on earth for three years in earthly ministry. He lived 33 years, but only three years were in public ministry where he was preaching and pouring his life into others. And what Jesus emphasized in this passage and all throughout his ministry is that he would mobilize every single person with a primary call in life, and that primary call is to the gospel. You are called, if you're a believer, first to God and the gospel, and then to everything else. I want you to let that sink in for just a few moments. These 12 disciples left everything to follow him. And when they began to follow him, he gave them the authority and the calling and the commission to go everywhere and share the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Your calling is exactly the same. Somebody said like this. They said, you know, your, 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 your assignment is what you're paid to do. But your calling is what you're made to do. Your assignment is where you work. Your assignment is what you do from day to day. And you have to have an assignment. Your assignment may be a business person or a mom or a student at this moment. Your assignment may be a variety of things vocationally. It could be in full-time ministry or it could be in full-time business. And your assignment is how God intends to work, but your call is primarily God and the gospel. That means that God and the gospel occupies your mind at work. It means God and the gospel occupies your mind at school. It means God and the gospel occupies your mind when you're in your community and when you're with your neighbors and when you're in the marketplace. Your primary calling, the primary calling of all of us is the gospel of Jesus Christ. We've got to elevate our call or we'll miss it. You know, you could do a wonderful job of taking care of your assignment and miss your whole calling. So Jesus is calling his disciples to elevate their call. And notice how hard it will be. If you look in verses two and three and four, he warns them, don't, don't take a lot of baggage. Don't even take a change of clothes. And whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave the city. All this is short-term, short-time ministry. He says in verse 5, as for those who do not receive you, you go out from that city, shake the dust off your feet. Some will reject you. Some will not want to interact with you anymore. But the reality is I'm calling you to the most important thing on planet Earth, to share the good news with those that do not yet know. 
I love this line, this line is what Jesus was doing basically. He was demonstrating that the future of the world depends on the average believer being able to proclaim the message of the gospel. Let that sink into your mind. Your neighbor has no hope if your call is not recognized as a call to the gospel. Your, your, your relatives have no hope if you do not share the gospel with them. And it's not a matter of helping people just be mobilized. It's a matter of helping people know what you're made for, what you're saved for, why God called you out of the crowd, because he wants you to share what's happened in your life with everyone else. You know, we're in a bad situation today in the church across America and that 95% of Christians today do not share their faith and have never shared their faith. 95% of Christians. Our goal is to flip that upside down on its head. I want this church to have the opportunity for every person to know how to share their faith and to be actively doing that as believers. It should be the bottom rung of leadership. Why would you teach the word of God if you can't share the gospel? Why would you lead a team if you can't share the gospel? Why would you be a deacon if you can't share the gospel? Because the call on our life is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Are you with me this morning? Because we need to be together on this. Need to be together here. And we have a tool by which we do that called Can We Talk? It's not the only way to share the gospel. We've equipped 700 people to share the gospel in this church alone. And our goal is for every person to be equipped and actively sharing their faith. Then we'll be more closely aligned for New Testament Christianity when we are recognizing our call to the gospel. Now pause for a moment. Do you think maybe the definition of church membership has been skewed just a little bit? from the days Jesus began to call us disciples till now? You think maybe we might be missing it just a little bit? From verse 23, where he says, if any man wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. You see, when we get back to the call, we get back to his call. And we get back to his priority. Jesus is elevating your call. What's your mission in life? Redefine it along the alignment of his definition. So we must first elevate the call. Secondly, elevate your reality. If you jump down to verse 12, and all this is designed to help us to know by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit how Jesus builds people's faith. And you've got to elevate your reality. And this next story is amazing. Verses 12 through 17 is the feeding of the multitudes. You know how this goes. The Bible says the day was ending and the 12 came up to him and said, send the crowd away so they may go into the surrounding villages and countryside and find lodging and get something to eat for. Here we are in a desolate place. And he said, you give them something to eat. Now their reality was about to be challenged. And they said, but we have no more than five loaves and two fish unless perhaps we go and buy food for all these people. Now this is a moment of sarcasm. It doesn't take a scholar to figure this out. These men were poor anyway, and they were called away from what jobs they had to follow Jesus. Jesus didn't come with a treasure full of money. And so they're saying, what are we supposed to do, Jesus, with this crowd? Are we supposed to go out and buy food for them? Yeah, right. And this is where Jesus begins to kind of correct their reality. He goes on in verse 14 and says, for there were about 5,000 men, and he said to his disciples, have them sit down to eat in groups of about 50 each. They did so. 
and had them all sit down, which was remarkable that they even did that. And then he took the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he blessed them and broke them and kept giving them to the disciples to set before the people. And they all ate and were satisfied and the broken pieces which they had left over were picked up. Twelve basketfuls. Now I hope that you are thinking in the details in this story today because the details are important to the lesson of elevating your reality. How many basketfuls were left over? Just want to make sure you're reading right. Now let's get this picture right. 5,000 men means perhaps as many as 5,000 women. So there are 10,000. In that day and time, there was not a lot of birth control, so they each had several kids. So probably 20,000 people there immediately, just off the top. I've seen movie depictions of the feeding of the multitudes, and it's really kind of crazy because everybody's sitting down, calm and in their right mind, their hands folded and waiting. And that's not the way it is when 20,000 people are hungry. I mean, we only had six kids, and when it was dinner time, they were screaming and loud and whining because they wanted food now. So I see 20,000 people in this crowd, and I see the disciples getting a little restless because these people have been here listening to Jesus for quite some time, and, and the disciples are done with it. They're over this. And so they're saying, it's been a great meeting, but let's send them home because they're hungry and there's nothing to feed them. And all we found is basically the amount of food that it would take to make a sandwich. That's it. Right, if we read other accounts, we know that a little boy has brought a small basket of food and his mother probably prepared it for him and him alone and he's willing to give it up. But the reality is there is no food. There are people that are restless and the disciples, they're not quite seeing it with the reality that obviously Jesus sees it, which is quite different. You know, an interesting study of the Bible here would be where you would list the realities going through the disciples' mind and compare them with the realities that Jesus is dealing with. In fact, if we did that, it would look something like this. The human reality is there are tons of people and they're getting anxious. There is no food to speak of. The only logical conclusion is send them away. And we have no money. Those are the realities of the disciples. Now, if you live by the realities that you see by yourself, you're not going to get far in following Jesus. Are you with me? You're not going to move down the road far. You're not going to obey him in many things because if you're dealing only with the physical realities, you're missing the factor that God brings to the equation. So let's look at the realities from Jesus' perspective. The divine reality said, well, there were five loaves and two fish. So the reality is, let's sit them down. We're going to take care of them. So the reality is, let's break bread and see what happens. And so as the bread is broken, then the food is multiplied. There are so many lessons in this feeding of the multitudes. It would take us all day to talk about that. And I'd like to do that. So let's just begin that right now, right? (laughs) Well, maybe we can abbreviate. God does great work in moments of insurmountable odds and insufficient supply. Sometimes that's where God does his greatest work. We're so concerned about the bottom line. We're so concerned about the dollar figure. We might not trust God if the dollars don't look right. And I want to tell you something today. There's nothing about faith in there. There's nothing about the divine realities in that. God sometimes waits until we're at that moment for him to demonstrate his power. Don't forget that. 
Well, what about this? What you have is blessed when you give it to God and not hold it to yourself. The real picture of faith here is this little boy that we don't read that much about in this text that we find in Matthew in a big way. This little boy, given his food by his mother most likely, comes and offers it to the disciples. I can't see them taking it away from him by force. So he hands it over to them, and as he gives it to God, who is Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, Jesus begins to break that and blesses it, and it multiplies, and there's enough for everyone. But there's a bigger lesson here that, that is included in the book of Luke, and that is that there were 12 baskets left over. How many baskets were left over? 12 baskets left over. By the way, how many disciples were there? 12 disciples. Now the baskets that we are talking about here are not small baskets where, uh, where you just had a lunch-sized portion, but big enough baskets for a man to crawl into. So these 12 disciples had to pick up these 12 baskets full of food and carry them to the next spot they went. And so as they're carrying these baskets, what kind of lessons must have been going through their mind? We complained. We tried to send them away. We said there's no way we can meet this need. We didn't think it was possible to feed these people and for them to be satisfied. And now, not only did Jesus feed them, but we're carrying these baskets around for the rest of the day of smelly fish and stale bread to remind us God is able to provide no matter what we think. Listen, you've seen this happen before, but you've got to elevate your reality. You see, we walk by faith and not by sight. That's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7. And then in Galatians chapter 2, he says this, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, in human body form, Paul says, I live by faith in the Son of God. I live by trust in the Son of God. And for me to do that, I've got to redefine my reality. And that new reality is we're never out. We're never broke. It's never over. It's never too late. God is always able to come through with his promises. And if these disciples weren't convinced at this point and all the scriptural evidence shows us they probably were not, then they would have to wait to the resurrection to be fully convinced. When their Savior died on the cross, where he was buried in a tomb, where a huge rock was rolled over the tomb's door, where they get up on that third day on Sunday morning and come and find the rock rolled away, they come and find the tomb empty, and then later on, they put their eyes on the resurrected and living Jesus, that's when it begins to sink in, that my old reality has changed, and I've got a brand new reality that's defined by God and not by me. I wonder how many of you today need to redefine your reality based on where you are in life. God may be putting you in a hopeless situation to make you hope in him for the first time. God may be emptying your confidence in yourself and your own ability so you can trust his. God may be getting you to the end of your fixing ability. You know what I'm talking about, for you to fix your own problems, for you to fix your own situations so that you can let him, the divine fixer, put it all back together. You've got to elevate your reality, and finally, you've got to elevate your understanding, and this is the best part of the whole chapter. In verse 18, we move to another conversation, and it says, it happened while he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he questioned them, saying, what, 
who do people say that I am? And they answered and said, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah. But others, that one of the prophets of old has risen again. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said, the Christ of God. And he warned them, instructed them not to tell this to anyone. Jesus wanted to make the proclamation himself. Ultimately, this elevate process takes place that we've been talking about today because you come to understand who he is. When I was growing up, my dad was a big boxer in the Navy. That's what he did uh, in his spare time. And so we always had boxing gloves around the house. I told you when I was young, we were in the basement boxing. He would be on his knees boxing me and teaching me to keep my guard up and how to swing and so forth. So I grew up fighting with my father, so to speak. I told you one time he knocked me out. He literally knocked me unconscious. I, I passed out for a quick second. And when I came to, I asked him what had happened. He said, you didn't keep your guard up. And so he, <laughs> over the years, but I was not a victim of child abuse. I want you to know that. My father did not beat me in that way. He had gloves on. He beat me in that way. <laughs> so we watched fights together on TV. For a while it was black and white TV and then it became color. And our favorite boxer was Muhammad Ali, the one who could float like a butterfly and sting like a bee. Anybody remember that guy? Would you raise your hand? Wow, what a fighter. You know, that funny thing about Muhammad Ali was that he would make these outlandish boasts and then back them up. He would say he could beat anybody. He would even name the rounds sometimes. And he would, he would take almost any fight imaginable and he would win. It was kind of amazing. So I grew up watching Muhammad Ali and long after Muhammad Ali had retired, and I was a grown man, I was making a trip one time, and I had a layover in the airport in Chicago. So I'm walking down the terminal at the airport in Chicago, and I see this entourage of people making a big commotion out in the middle of the airport. And I began to look over that way, and probably eight or 10 guys in black suits and white shirts and black ties, and in the middle of that, Muhammad Ali. <laughs> he was there in that airport, 20, 30 feet from me. And at first I thought, nah, it can't be him. And then I got closer. They got closer until they kind of said, no, don't get any closer. And there he was, Muhammad Ali. You know what? I was about maybe 30 years old, but it still took my breath away. I got to tell you, honestly, <laughs> that was him, the greatest of all fighters. There he was. And by the time I got closer, I could say he was a little bit more frail. He's kind of shaking, he had Parkinson's disease. And part of that is a result of his fighting career. And obviously just wasn't quite the same as he was on TV. But I could see that was him, the greatest of all times. I became aware that I was in his presence. Now, that's a very, very small thing in reality. Because you see, Peter was standing in the presence of the Christ of a living God. Peter was standing right next to Jesus. No entourage around him. Nobody keeping him away from Jesus. And Peter is being addressed by Jesus himself. And the questions are, who do men say that I am? And then the most important question, who do you say that I am? And I love Matthew's recording of this account because in Matthew chapter 16, the Bible says Jesus said to him, 
Who do you say that I am? And he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And then Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father who's in heaven. In other words, you know this because God the father has unveiled to you and you are fully aware you're standing in the presence of God in the flesh. And ultimately, Everything that we've talked about today only makes sense if it's the God in the flesh that we are following. If it's God made flesh, if it's Jesus, the Son of God. Think with me. If Jesus isn't God, none of this makes sense. You don't anchor your life and the call on your life on him if he's not God. You don't live by a different reality if he's not God. If he's not God, you have no greater purpose than anyone else. It's just normal living. You have no elevated reality. All you have is this everyday normal. But he's God. He's God. And he's calling you to change your calling in life. He's calling you to change the realities by which you walk. Some of you here today say, well, how do I get there if, if I've not come to that place where Peter was, where he acknowledges and recognizes that Jesus is God's Messiah. The reality is God opens their eyes Sometimes a step at a time. Maybe with these guys, it was through the prophecies of Jesus that came true when Jesus was born and began to live his life. Maybe it was through the life of Jesus as they saw him living evidently a different life. Maybe the teachings of Jesus as he taught them so many different things they'd never heard before. Maybe they were convinced by the miracles of Jesus. And ultimately, maybe they were convinced by the sacrifice of Jesus, the love that was so great that he laid down his life for them. But all of them had to realize after the death of Jesus and then finally the resurrection of Jesus and later on the resurrection appearances of Jesus Christ that he is who he says he is. And they made that decision to follow him and everything else changes as a result of that. And I want to ask you today as I draw to the end of this moment, what about those of you who have not made that decision that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. No wonder you don't live with a different call. And no, long, no wonder you don't have a different reality than the normal, everyday, physical reality. And what you need so desperately is to come to recognize that Jesus is God and that he calls you and he wants to transform your life if you'll have it. And then what about those of us who have at some point in our life recognized who he was and have, dare I say it, grown bored with the whole thing. No longer does it excite you to be with Jesus. No longer does it move you to be called with such a high calling of the gospel every day. No longer are you willing to think in a different reality than the everyday, ordinary human reality that quite frankly pretty dead what do we say to those of you that have lost their awareness of who it is who caused you my wife and had my wife and I had this great trip this summer and we were at Lake Tahoe and we decided to pay to get on a tram it was an enclosed tram that just she and I were in, and it ascended up to the top of a mountain slope. The slopes were closed because it was summer, but there was still snow around. 
And so as we went up those slopes, we were able to look all around us at the beautiful snow-capped mountains, the mountain ranges. As we got higher, we could see them all. You turn around, look down, and you see the rocks and the trees that descends down to the city of Lake Tahoe. And then across the city, this beautiful deep blue lake that is so huge and so beautiful, so amazing. And most of our conversation going up was about how glorious God's creation is and how it always points back to his glory and his majesty and his goodness and his ability and his supernaturalness. I mean, we were just talking about that. And as we were going up, I noticed that going down just next to us on the same wire, but another, another tram, another car, was an employee of South Lake Tahoe Ski Resort. And he'd finished his shift, and he'd gotten in that car, and he was going down. And instead of looking down at the glorious creation of God, his back was to what he was going down. And he was doing this. He had his phone out. He was like sitting down in spite of that glorious view, and he was just looking at his phone. And I thought, and I said to my wife, I hope something this beautiful doesn't ever become mundane for us. Oh, this is so glorious, so beautiful. But the truth is sometimes something as glorious as God himself becomes mundane. And we're attracted by things that really don't matter when the presence of Jesus is in our midst. Listen, recapture that. Come back to that. Come back and become reacquainted. Have an awareness that the one who speaks to you is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And let him motivate your call and let him motivate your sense of reality and what you do every day and your worship and your prayer life and everything else you do because he's the Christ, the Son of the living God. But only you can come back to him and answer. I love how Jesus first said, who do men say that I am? And then he said, who do you? Who do you say that I am? You know the big question today I want to close with is this one. Are you living like you know? Are you living like you're aware of the living God who calls you? I want you to bow your head for just a moment. It's a moment of decision it's an opportunity for you to live again like you know that the living God speaks to you. It's a chance to you in this room who for the first time need to make a decision to respond to him as he is, the living God. He's your Savior. He's the Lord. He's the sacrificial lamb. He's the one that gave his life for you. He was placed in a tomb. He rose again the third day and and he asks you, who do people say that I am? And you may have a dozen opinions about this because you've heard different people talk about Jesus, but really what Jesus is asking you is, who do you say that I am? And if your answer is not like Peter's, maybe you've not been made aware yet. Maybe you've not awoken to the fact that he is the Christ, your Savior, your Lord, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And I want you to know today, you can make that decision today. What Peter said became a confession of faith. Thomas later said it in John 14, my Lord and my God. And you hear those professions of faith made throughout the Bible. What about you?
Are you ready to profess faith in Jesus, the Son of the living God? In just a moment, our invitation will call you to that. I'm going to pray. We'll be standing in a moment. I ask you to walk forward and talk to one of these individuals. And here's what you're saying to them. You're saying, I recognize who Jesus is and I want to follow him today. And when you say those words or anything similar, they know what the next step is to help you understand and to make that decision today. You don't have to walk away today unaware of who it is that caused you. And some of you today, quite frankly, need to hang around a few moments because you've lost your awareness and you need to become reacquainted with the glorious one who caused you. Maybe the fire's gone out of your heart. Maybe the wind out of your sails. Maybe you've been beaten up, worn out, disappointed. But I'm going to tell you it's still true that the one who calls you is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And today I call you back to him. For you to have a different life, you have to have an increased awareness of who he is, and you can have that today. Let your guard down. Let your mind be open. This is he who calls you and no one else. I'm going to ask that you stand for just a moment. And as you stand, I'm going to pray. Clearly, we invite those who are our guests today to come to the guest reception center after the service, but there's plenty of time for you to make that spiritual decision first. In fact, we would rather you make a spiritual decision today with these at the front than to come to that guest reception center. We'll be there when you get through here. But we invite all guests to come there. But as I close in prayer, I want your mind to be on this decision here in this room. And that is, who do you say that he is? Father, I thank you so much today for the amazing encounter you had with these disciples. Thank you so much for your love and your patience with each of them and us. And I pray, Father, today that you'll help us to walk away today with a, a greater awareness of who you are a greater and elevated sense of a call that you placed on our lives and the importance of the gospel and the importance of walking by faith today. And that's all of us you're calling to do this. Help each of us make that decision before we leave this room today. Father, we love you. We thank you so much that you came to meet us where we are. Do that again today in Jesus' name. Amen.